Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 29th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Uh, folks, I only have like three hours of program to fit in this one hour, so wish us the best. Today, we'll resume the California primary coverage with Orange County District Attorney candidate Pete Harden who's challenging incumbent Todd Spitzer. And reminder that the election ends on June 7th. I say that now because we have opportunities to vote early, but the ballots are collected and we've got a few days after June 7th. Get everything in by June 7th. In the second segment of today's show, returning is Brooke Aston Harper, a local activist parent, advocate, educator, and arts professional here in Orange County with perspectives on navigating life in Orange County as a black woman through some rather fraught news cycles. We'll be right back. Don't go well. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is... Pete Harden, district attorney candidate on our Orange County primary ballot for June 7th. Can't say that enough, folks. We'll take it from the top with his history. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in English at the University of Colorado in Boulder, then his Juris Doctor, his JD's Law Degree from George Washington University, while also attending officer candidate school in the Marine Corps and serving as a summer law clerk to Judge James E. Baker, former chief judge to the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in Washington, D.C. During Pete Harden's time in the military, he completed training in the Navy Operational Law Training, Marine Corps Expeditionary Warfare, and U.S. Army Airborne Schools. He earned his commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps, served in the Helmand province in Afghanistan, 2011-12, as a lead counsel in courts, martial, and administrative separation hearings. You know, like people are terminated, that kind, not the kind like dissolution of marriages. Later, as Captain Pete Harden ran the prosecution office for the largest command in the Marine Corps, after leaving active duty, he became a deputy district attorney in Orange County for the Central District of California. As a deputy DA, he worked with and advised law enforcement officers from various Orange County municipalities, the California Highway Patrol, and toxicology experts. As a federal prosecutor, he worked with and advised law enforcement agents from the FBI, Secret Service, Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, Bureau of Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, and the Postal Inspection Service while prosecuting cases involving financial and governmental fraud, mail and service. After departing public service, he worked at the Larson O'Brien firm in, in L.A. and the Greenberg Gross in Orange County before starting his own law practice. He's conducted internal investigations of and represented companies and corporate officers, conducted in-depth research and drafted litigants for uh, motions and pleadings and prepared presentations for clients in federal and state prosecutions and investigators. 
And he's worked with experts in toxicology, DNA, financial accounting, emotional, physical trauma, computer information extraction, and prison efficacy in preparation for trial and mitigation at sentencing. It's community radio's opportunity to give a platform to lesser-known candidates. I'm going to let people know that there's a record that the incumbent Todd Spitzer has been widely published about, so I'm honing in on the lesser-knowns during this primary coverage. And I'll continue to do that all the way through June 7th, primary day. So Peter Harden comes to us today from his home in Costa Mesa. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Pete Harden. Good morning, Claudia. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Well, thank you. And as always, we do these candidate interviews with policy, not politics in mind. We'll explore priorities, transparency in the agency, agency culture, and collaboration on new mental health initiatives in this very short time together. So let's start with the many models of district attorney around the country who are unabashedly committing to different approaches and getting some interesting results. First, Pete Harden, I'd like to hear you talk about your philosophy of criminal justice, what areas of law you place priorities. Sure, absolutely. Well, I first became interested in figuring out how we create a better criminal justice system when I was a a young deputy district attorney, and I saw uh, people recycling through the system time and again for uh, the same set of, of underlying reasons that stem from addiction or, or mental illness and homelessness. And uh, I've come to understand, Claudia, that until we start recognizing those as public health crises and not just issues to be dealt with in the criminal justice system, um, we are going to keep perpetuating a broken, revolving door criminal justice system and increase our over-incarceration problem in this, uh, in this state and this country. Well, the incumbent, uh, whenever an opportunity poses itself, or he'll find the opportunity, he always, he sort of, he's running against George Gascon, <laughs> the uh, Los Angeles district attorney. So it's, it always comes up when I ever pick up some uh, of his deliveries. So tell us about what model of district attorney do you aspire to in terms of what makes the broader community safe and thrive? And how do you gauge the success of a district attorney's administration? Sort of put those together. Sure, absolutely. So the way we gauge success of a district attorney is by community safety. And community safety is suffering tremendously under Todd Spitzer. Uh, Homicides in Orange County are at a 23-year high. Uh, Crime is up across the board. Otherwise, uh, homelessness in Orange County, certainly not a crime, but worth mentioning here, uh, homelessness is also up over 41% in the few years since uh, Todd Spitzer has been in office. So uh, by, by any measure, this administration has been an abject failure. Um, my philosophy on how to institute uh, criminal justice reforms is to take a nuanced approach and to trust the uh, good judgment for which we hire Deputy District Attorneys, uh, you know, I, I do not think blanket policies are the are the approach. I think we've seen with with other uh, prosecutors across the country that when you implement a blanket policy, um, it it, uh, it handcuffs prosecutors from doing their jobs. It, it turns prosecutors against you, um, and so we've got to be careful about not creating policy based on the extremes, like I think California did in the 1990s. 
that led to uh, where we are in terms of over-incarceration. On the other hand, we can't have a blanket policy that only rests on the norms and doesn't recognize the extremes, because then the policy becomes defined by the extremes, as we are seeing in uh, in other places. So uh, we need to take a nuanced approach, uh, put uh, the power in the hands of, of prosecutors who are well-trained and understand the modern data and social science that tells us uh, very clearly that uh, you know, our system is broken in some fundamental ways, but there's a lot of hope, too. There, there are ways that we can fix it. Well, so that you bring up a lot of thoughts about um, when we think of nuance in public policy and in uh, law enforcement and uh, criminal justice. There, it's sort of like when I hear deliveries I uh, by like the standard bear kind of district attorney, it's about solving the crime. And when you're talking about nuance, are you talking about like the upstream kind of what might be the sort of the the basis for why crimes are committed, sort of like preventing, is there a preventative piece to what district attorney's office could be about? Absolutely, Claudia, absolutely. So uh, in, in my view, the district attorney's job should not start when uh, the police bring charges, and it should not end when a jury says the word guilty or a, a, a plea agreement is signed. It we need to put a whole uh, system in front of, of that uh, that first piece to prevent people from coming into the criminal justice system in the first place. And uh, we, are, we are just not doing that here in Orange County whatsoever. Uh, we need to bring services out into communities that need them to ensure that uh, communities who struggle with various barriers to getting uh, mental health treatment or addiction treatment or um, treat, uh, services for, for issues around homelessness are getting them so that they never come into the criminal justice system in the first place. And on the back end, we certainly need to empower prosecutors to um, help people reintegrate into society in a positive and productive way, at least to take a part in that process and to understand that that is a, a fundamental, fundamental aspect of our criminal justice system. Because, look, as it stands now, Claudia, uh, you know, 95% of people are going to get out of prison. 90, 95% of people who go are going to get out. And two-thirds of them recycle through the system within 60 to 90 days. Um, and that just makes prosecutors and law enforcement job that much harder. So uh, we need to take a more intelligent approach to, okay. to these issues. Yes. So... I guess I, I'm going to shuffle my questions around because we're sort of honing in on this. There's the culture of the district attorney's office that it's getting a whole lot of coverage. And so I, I'd like to ask sort of how you, um, as he likes to say, he's uh, it's a huge outfit. He quotes, he says he's got the largest law office in the county and Chuck getting chuckled from his audiences. and But that's a huge outfit and it's consequential influence over the whole county, how laws interpreted, enforced, and all that. So, talk about Pete Harden, how you would manage the current culture. And I mean, you've made many claims of what uh, sexual harassment, pay to play, corruption, racism within the current administration. So, and I, I've just checked back. I mean, there, this is baked into this agency, the district attorney's office. There, it goes back. Back, you could say, arguably, not to 1966, uh, D.A. Rakakis, Mike Capizzi, and Seal Hicks went all the way back to 1966. So how does a new candidate would be, if were to be elected in, how do you deal with this 
big, fat bureaucracy with this culture that's uh, been uh, very problematic in Orange County. Sure. Claudia, if I, if I may just respectfully disagree with you for a second, though, I, I don't think the problem is endemic to the office itself. I know so many terrific prosecutors there, my, my friends, my former colleagues, uh, just outstanding public servants who want to do the right thing, but they need a leader who leads with integrity and who uh, is a leader rather than a showman. And for the last four years, at least, uh, morale has declined precipitously. They've lost upwards of 70 percent of the people in the office because uh, they have a leader who is not looking out for them. He's looking out for himself. Uh, Todd Spitzer's number one priority has always been Todd Spitzer. And uh, the most dangerous place to be in Orange County is between Todd Spitzer and a, and a, and a TV camera. Uh, so we need a leader who will, will be a servant leader and uh, instill uh, trust and faith back into uh, the prosecutor's job, restore, uh, restore their ability to make decisions, not uh, second-guess them at every turn, um, certainly put policies in place uh, to guide them. But uh, there are a lot of terrific people there, and I think it's simply a matter of changing the uh, I shouldn't say simply. It's, it's obviously more complicated than that because it is a, a huge office. But I think changing the, uh, the, 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 the head of the office is, is the key to turning things around. So it's not like what some of the, the new reform district attorneys on the scene in the country that they've had to deal with. They're, they're shuffling around different uh, cultures and, and um, some priorities of what kind of field of law that they're hiring for so that the there's been institutional knowledge that has left those district attorneys off, but you have, you have in your estimation, a an employee of attorneys that are ready to uh, redirect from what once there's leadership that is changed, it could happen just believe- on the on, on not on the dime, but it it just by changing the head, uh, it this uh, a very consequential sort of reform could be taking place. I, I believe so. I do, Claudia. And I also want to point out that, you know, my, my policies differ in some significant and important ways from other prosecutors uh, who are uh, taking a, a, a progressive approach. Um, well, tell us know, about I, that. I'm happy to identify as a, as a progressive in this race because I do want to progress past an era of scandals and endless lawsuits that uh, cost us morally and uh, significantly fiscally as well. All the settlements for the lawsuits that Spitzer has faced is costing this county, you know, millions and millions of dollars in taxpayer money. Um, And we do need to progress past that. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Pete Hardin, former judge advocate in the U.S. Marine Corps, deputy district attorney, special assistant United States attorney, now a litigator in his own practice. And currently, and why he's here, he's a candidate for the Orange County district attorney challenging the incumbent Todd Spitzer in the California June 7th primary. Well, that is a pivot you've given me, the costs of settling about the the transgressions in the district attorney's office. So I'd like to sort of open up. We're going to talk the topic of transparency. I know from constituents in the county, when they've requested Freedom of Information Act documents, Todd Spitzer, the district attorney, has supplied records from the previous administration, not his own. So, Pete Harden, what do you commit to? What do you see as your role in providing transparency 
for all constituents in Orange County. I will commit to having the most transparent district attorney's office we've ever had in Orange County and to lead the way on this in our state. Look, I think that our criminal justice system is one of the fundamental tenets of our democracy, uh, not just in our county or, or state, but in this country. And no democratic institution can survive without sunlight. People need to be able to see it, to trust it, uh, and need to be able to t- test it, to trust it. And time and again, we have seen uh, our current district attorney maintain this office as a, a completely opaque black box. And that is not okay. Uh, the Orange County District Attorney's Office is one of the highest line item uh, budget items in uh, in Orange County, and uh, we deserve a lot better than that. And I'll give you a great example, uh, if I may, Claudia. Please. Um, one of the reporters from the Voice of Orange County went to the District Attorney's Office and asked what the number one most prosecuted crime in Orange County is. And the DAs either would not or could not tell him, both of which indicate a, a significant problem. So it took uh, many different public requests act and thousands of dollars uh, in, in fees for him to figure out that the number one most prosecuted crime in Orange County is possession of drug paraphernalia, a low-level, nonviolent crime. And as it turns out, the top 10 most prosecuted crimes in Orange County are all low-level, nonviolent crimes. This at a time when violent crime in Orange County is growing out of control. Um, these are the types of things that the public deserves to know so that we can have a say Uh, And there are so many communities in Orange County that have never had a voice, never known that they could have a voice in our criminal justice and policing system. So with that disclosure, then, of the most prosecuted crime, does that tip your hand, you you as a candidate or and as a a veteran in this, the related office, is that it is essentially um, it's sort of cherry picking where one could say the sort of the record we this we've litigated crimes like never before, because that's been a claim that he'll bring in public addresses. Is that is that cherry-picking to go after drug paraphernalia possession? I, I don't I don't know if I'd call it cherry-picking, but it, it's, it's certainly uh, not putting our resources to the greatest use. I, you know, I, 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 I certainly, you know, I'm, I'm raising my child here and, and my family here, and I, I love Orange County. I certainly uh, am uh, protective of our quality of life in Orange County that I think is something that sets us apart from our brother and sister counties uh, to the east and north and, and south. Um, but I, I also pride my uh, my family's and my neighbor's personal safety above anything else. And I, what I want to see is law enforcement officers doing what they do do best, which is community policing and chasing violent, violent, uh, violent offenders. Um, I don't want to see them have to waste their time. And, and in talking with law enforcement officers, I, I understand that they're frustrated about our revolving door system. They're tired of arresting and rearresting the same people only to see crime uh, and homelessness skyrocket in our in our communities. Well, I guess that it's a stretch my expression, the cherry picking, but maybe in a sense, a kind of law enforcement low hanging fruit if, uh, in public addresses. He's talking about that person. I mean, he, he, he's profiling in the talk. A person, by virtue of being a member of a gang, is a bad person. And so if there is a profiling of gang affiliations and going after, if there's, the, you know, that paraphernalia, there's no other, there's no other kind of a, a offense. That, that, that's what I'm talking about, the sort of a, the prioritization of what kind of a, an offense to sort of to demonstrate 
the activity in the district attorney's office. So it's so right, right. So, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and if I may add here too, you sort of mentioned the the tough talk, you know, chest thumping, tough on crime rhetoric. You know, um, I, I think the the example I like to use is around hate crimes. Hate crimes in Orange County against our Asian American Pacific Islander community have have uh, risen by eighteen hundred percent over the last few years. Eighteen hundred percent. That is unfathomable. And our current district attorney stands up and says that his office, you know, brags that the office has uh, prosecuted more hate crimes than ever before. Well, of course, uh, of course, you know, you don't, you don't get extra points for, for doing your job. What I want to see, uh, and, and the reason I'm running is because I want to be a leader who is going to get out in front of these issues. When hate crimes arise, uh, when hate speech arises, go out into the communities, do the hard work that doesn't get the headlines. Claudia doesn't get the headlines, but it's the hard work that uh, brings our community closer together, build bridges with our uh, our community partners uh, and communities of color, um, and give them a voice, give them that voice that they've never had in our system before. Well, you've mentioned that it's the district attorney's office is the, one of the top line items in the county, and so I, I, if you could break down, I, it's not the easiest thing to find, um, but how do you see the district attorney's funding coming, I believe it's appropriations from the county board of supervisors. In the Todd Spitzer's first year, there was a $150 million budget there with 800 attorneys. So could you talk about the current workload needs being met? And is there a kind of a, is there competition for the law enforcement dollar between what the what's appropriated to the sheriff's office and what is appropriated to district attorneys, assistant district, assistant district attorneys and staff? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not aware that there is, is competition between them. I think, uh, you know, there needs to be a much better working relationship between our sheriff and our district attorney. Uh, our, our current district attorney is just never someone who has, you know, played well in the sandbox, so to speak, uh, with others throughout his, his career. Uh, he's left a, a wake of broken relationships um, in in his in his path, and um, you know uh, the district attorney must have a strong working relationship with police chiefs and the sheriff uh, across this county in order to effectively do his or her job. And uh, that's that's not what we have right now. But to your point about uh, the, the the caseload and what is happening in the office. I'm sad to tell you, Claudia, that I can't answer that, and that's because of the lack of transparency. That is something that we sh- we all deserve to know. We all deserve to know how many cases the office prosecuted last year. That should be something that there should be a dashboard on the website that w- that we can go and see that, because those are our tax dollars at work, and we should be able to see where those cases are coming from and the demographic breakdown and what the most uh, what the most charged crimes are. Uh, but we we don't know. And I don't know because of the lack of transparency. And that's exactly why I'm running. So then, because we have much to say here, uh, cover, uh, what are the district attorney's tools that you understand toward or that you'd have to maybe have to create a new toward delivering for the Be Well Orange County's goals of optimal mental health? Because you talked about the upstream sort of mental health kind of factor in criminal justice. So what would you be doing? How would you sign on to cooperating, collaborating with the Be Well Orange County's various agencies? Absolutely. Yeah, Be Well OC is a terrific organization, and it needs more 
leaders to come out in in support of it instead of just showing up uh, and and taking credit for it. We need a district attorney who's going to promote uh, increasing funding for it and uh, getting out into all of our communities. Um, One one of my priorities will be to work with the Board of Supervisors and uh, Sheriff Barnes to uh, bring in crisis response teams uh, staffed with uh, folks who are especially trained to deal with issues involving addiction, mental health, or homelessness, um, who can respond to those types of calls. You know, uh, in in other counties, uh, you can call 911 for, for any sort of violent emergency, and you can dial 988 for uh, a disturbance involving one of those issues and have a non-armed uh, social worker or crisis response team member uh, re- respond to, to 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 that call, and we see time and again uh, the tragic results of um, that, that can sometimes happen when law enforcement is called out to uh, situations involving mental health or or homelessness or addiction crises. Um, so, you know, Sheriff Barnes has publicly said that he'd be interested in looking at uh, dedicating a part of his budget to bring in these crisis response teams, and uh, that is a you know that that's a big area where he and I could work together, and uh, I think that the board of supervisors can come around on that too. So uh, I look forward to to working on that. Well, a couple of uh, weeks ago, Health and Human Service Secretary Javier Becerra was here at the was it, he was at the Great Park. It was a kind of a I'm not sure if it was all private. There was press there, but very select press, including moi. But present were. Irvine officials, but the sheriff's department, I'm not sure it was a matter they weren't invited or they just didn't show up. So that's that's a little problematic. If the, and, and the whole point of the panel was to talk about <clears throat> Be Well OC's models going from the city of Orange and setting up the second site in the city of Irvine. So without the sheriff's department being represented there, it just it does put a little cloud on how much uh, the district attorney and the sheriff might be sort of m- collaborating on the upstream sort of mental health component of of criminal justice. Oh, ab- absolutely, Claudia. That, that, that's a shame that that the sheriff's department either wasn't invited or or, or wasn't there. I, uh, I I'm a huge supporter of of law enforcement. I've worked with them throughout my whole career um, as, as a prosecutor and and well before that. Um, and uh, you know, I know that. Law enforcement has to be a part of the solution. Uh, we, we cannot simply point to the uh, actions of a few. Um, you know, there, there are very few officers and deputies who cause disturbances that bring down, tarnish the reputation of law enforcement as a whole. And uh, we, 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 we cannot give in to uh, the temptation, perhaps, to, uh, to bring down the, the whole uh, the, the whole law enforcement community. We we must bring them in as part of, of the solution. There There is no other way to, to do it. Well, what concerns me, too, why I, I'm going to increasingly bring up the county board of supervisors, sort of the factor of the discretion of where they're spending. They've got they've got a lot of money that they're hoarding. I'm going to call it out it's, as a hoarding there. They have it's appropriated for these kinds of uses. And I've noticed Pete Harden, that when I go to a like a press event and there's these nonprofits there now, they're they're pretty diffident about trying to get the board of supervisors to open up the cash that's supposed to underwrite the kinds of things that the nonprofits do with the county. So I don't know if you have 
uh, if you see the district attorney has a special kind of leverage to saying, okay, this money is intended for this use. Let's move it out. Let's let the NGOs do their thing and let's get some results here in Orange County, make people safer, make them thrive. How would you do that? I don't think it's any sort of special leverage. There's, there's, no, there's no magic or, or secret to this here other than good leadership and leadership over showmanship and uh, leadership with, with integrity uh, rather than uh, expedience. And uh, perhaps what, the ingredient that is missing uh, here at the DA's office is, is that type of leader. Um, I, don't, uh, I, I don't know what sort of relationship our current DA has with the Board of Supervisors, but uh, he hasn't been able to get any of this done for the last four years, but really it's the last 30 years. Our district attorney has been in, you know, on the ballot in Orange County for various positions for the last 30 years. He's been in power. Uh, he's had every opportunity to do the right thing and develop these relationships, and it's astounding that he hasn't done that. Um, so, you know, I look forward to forming those relationships, and I think um, I have the type of personality and, and leadership ability to, uh, to bring people around, um, educate them on how these things make us safer, how they create a better, more prosperous community for all of us in Orange County. Well, speaking of the ballot, there are going to be, besides Todd Spitzer and Pete Harden, you, there's Brian Chehawk, Chihawk. Michael Jacobs are also on the ballot for the district attorney on June 7th. So pretty key here, and we don't have much time left, and succinctly as you are able to, how are you getting voters to turn out in this primary? Because let's face it, our bandwidths are super loaded here. How to get people to turn out and how to get them to vote down ballot. What, what's your approach there? Sure. Well, we've been reaching out to voters like crazy. Um, you know, we've earned endorsements from Planned Parenthood, labor organizations, LGBTQ plus groups, um, a, a ton of other uh, community groups, grassroots groups that have a, a wide reach to reach out to voters. Let them know that this hugely important election is coming up. Let them know that they have that voice that I've been talking about um, and that they, they need to speak up and they can do so on the ballot. Um, and, you know, the Democratic Party is incredibly energized uh, and enthusiastic right now. And uh, I think that we've got a great shot at, uh, at winning this seat. And I have every confidence that uh, the people are going to turn out. And are there other places specific, like in the next week and a half or three, <laughs> where folks can meet you? We will post uh, upcoming events on our website. Um, it's, you know, it's been... Uh, it's been rocky back and forth with, uh, you know, uh, the, the opening of, of our society with, with the pandemic. Uh, it seems like every time we take a step forward, we take a step and a half or two back. Um, so we are certainly trying to trying to put things uh, back on the calendar to meet in public. But I encourage folks to, to reach out through our website. You can email us at info at PeteHarden.com. And um, delighted to meet with, with groups big and small um, and answer folks' questions. Are you using your Twitter account to also post the activities? I mean, I, I see you're commenting and posting articles, but is that another angle that Isaac et al. are working on? Absolutely. For, no, yep, my campaign team, uh, we have a great uh, social media outreach program, and folks can reach us that way. I guess I'm, you know, I guess I'm so old school that I forget. That I, I mentioned the website, but I forget about. Oh, that tells media. us somebody but. else is running it. Okay, well now we got that. That's our big reveal here. Well, well, Pete Harden, I appreciate this opportunity to get familiar with you, and I thank you for your time as well as I thank all candidates for running for public office. 
Thank you, Claudia. Have a great day. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. My guest was Bye-bye. Pete Harden, former uh, judge advocate in the U.S. Marine Corps, deputy district attorney, special assistant United States attorney, now was a litigator on his practice, currently a candidate for the Orange County District Attorney, challenging the incumbent Todd Spitzer in the California June 7th primary. We'll be right back with Brooke Aston Harper, advocate, educator, and arts professional here in Orange County with some fresh takes experience as a black woman in the OC. Welcome back to the show. My next guest with much to tell us in such a short time is Brooke Harper. Brooke Aston Harper, an activist parent, wife, advocate, educator, and arts professional here in Orange County. It's a short introduction given her having appeared on a couple of earlier shows and in the interest of time. Her four guiding principles as a director are, she's a director of Diversity, Inclusion, Body Positivity, Disability, Visibility. Last year, she created a petition condemning the Orange County Board of Education's infamous white paper on school reopening that, much to her surprise, garnered over 60,000 signatures. She's since turned her focus to her local school board in the hopes to serve the historically underrepresented families and students who live in the Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District. Through this work, she's discovered a large contingency of equity-minded families, moms especially, which she's emphasized for me, throughout her, uh, throughout her community. So Brooke's last appearance was taking up last fall's opening up of, of the culture wars around critical race theory at the Unified School District where they live, and they're only mounting folks. Today we have a roster of trends and a project that warned our attention, the casual ways in which persons of color are tasked to contribute toward organization meetings, DEI goals, how her creative work enlivens and embodies those goals, and how the Supreme Court of the U.S. confirmation hearings last week parallel the struggles at her local school board. Brooke comes to us today from her home in Placentia. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Brooke Aston Harper. Hi, Claudia. How are you? Oh, thank you for being on here. I'm great. It's great. So, uh, a diversity, equity, inclusion manager walked into a bar, or no? Let's <laughs> let's say you get you get a call, Brooke, and you're asked mm-hmm. to solve the firm's ages long established, deeply embedded HR issues. And on, on background, you've mentioned you've been getting quite a few requests for your services in this mission. So talk to us about what <laughs> assumptions they bring to that request and what's missed from yours and others' perspectives in that sort of effortless sort of request of what what can you do for our firm to make it all right? Sure. I mean, as far as the assumptions that are often made, um, I think the biggest one is that the work that I'm doing for them on their behalf or to help them in improving the turnout of um, an ethnically diverse group of people looking for work with their company, um, that that work is not something that's worth compensation or a consulting fee or something like that. Um, But, I mean, that's very personal. On the grander level, I think the thing that tends to be missed the most by organizations is that 
the issue of not getting an ethnically diverse group of people to turn out looking for work in an arts organization generally is an institutional issue that needs to be addressed, not something that they need to just come to me, come to, you know, their friends with every single time it happens, if that makes sense. Right. Well, and I I just want to... um. When I talk to people about this, the sort of the exhaustion of like if if this is a minority person, that means every the majority wants for the the few people involved be doing all that kind of work. They're, the the person that's making that facile request of you to help them out diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, they don't know there's a line. There's a lot of people have been asking you this over time. It's Back true. I mean, and of course I'm willing to do these things for my friends, but it's it's when it gets to the second or third time and they're having the same issue that I really have to point out to them, you know, this is an institutional issue that requires an institutional change. And it's clear to me that, you know, these institutions that are so well-intended really, really want an easy fix for a very complicated uh, question. Okay. So then... How does the firm demonstrate a good faith effort and a commitment when they approach you? What are you listening for? What are, where do they make it a genuine sort of commitment? Well, I think the most important thing to me is when they commit to creating a long-term plan. Um, I love writing plans. I love making spreadsheets. I love developing, um, you know, kind of a, a series of actions that will create an outcome. And in this case, for these organizations, I just strongly suggest to them that they come up with a long-term plan. They reach out to every diversity group in Orange County. They reach out to the Black Democrats of Orange County. They reach out to every Black student union on every campus, that they really start to cultivate relationships with the organizations where the people that they're missing from their organization um, congregate and come together. So that's that's and, what they could do. They could say, oh, Brooke, uh, we've been doing some of our work now. We've been We'd like to know if if we're on the right path, or this is what we're this is where we were able to get something out of them, or not, or I mean, but so it's it's showing work has been done, that connections have been initiated and begun to be cultivated. I mean, that's that's what anybody asking for DEI kind of counsel from you is that what demonstrates good faith? Is they've already started? To me, that demonstrates good faith. What, and then conversely, what doesn't demonstrate good faith is calling me and asking me, hey, we need a black actor for this role, and then saying, um, do you know anyone? And my response is generally, I know all the same black people you know. Really? <laughs> and, what, and what do they say to that, Brooke? Um, well, they, generally the response is um, fair point. And you're right, and that's when I launch into this idea that they have an institutional problem that cannot be solved with, with, with just calling their black friends to find other black people, you know? So, and that's where they're at the juncture where they go, okay, are we going to, we're going to ask for pro bono kinds of uh, consultation, or are we going to look deep in our budget and we're going to find some remuneration for somebody whose broadband we want to encroach on? I mean, that is the option that they have to consider. And, you know, I've had to really be clear that as of late, um, when when I first started getting all these calls, I was 
of course, happy to help, and it was tiresome, but it was worth it. But, I mean, at this point, DEI um, is here to stay, especially in the arts world. Every DEI organization has made their DEI statement, but I think what's really important for any organization in the arts or outside of the arts, once you make that statement, you need to realize that it's an action Diversity, equity, and inclusion is about action. It's not about three little nouns, and um, they need to take that action. Well, I guess this just calls to my mind the really, it was a riveting kind of a tell about the Metropolitan Opera of New York. Mr. Gelb approached Charles Blow. He, I mean, the, Charles Blow did not see it coming. Um, mm-hmm. A columnist who has, um, I'm just trying, shot through my bones. I can't remember the title of his opera, but, but Mr. Gelb, had approached him and he said, "You, your opera is how we have to open our season for 2022. So if Mr. Gelb got the memo, how, I mean, we know the, the opera has a few resources there, but, but so that he went directly to the, to the opera composer. So, I mean, so that's sort of, that's an, a really exemplary kind of a gesture that maybe um, that makes it sound like, well, it's how hard is it folks? Right. Absolutely. And I think the key to what you just said is, you know, I'm not without without any empathy or, or grace to offer organizations. It's resources. You know, these companies have been limping along through um, COVID, and they are really struggling to figure out the resources of how to keep their doors open. And now we're demanding, well, we're demanding, but we're inviting all of these organizations to also look at how their institutions have historically excluded different marginalized groups. Um, but they, but I do think it's worth it, and I do think it will create a richer landscape for every single one of them. It will also bring in a new audience base. Um, do you mind if I flip on over to just specifically the wayward artist? So that's that would be the next question. But first, we've got to let people know my guest is Brooke Aston Harper. She's a very involved activist mom, wife, advocate, educator, arts professional here in Orange County. And we're talking about navigating the DEI and other goals in Orange County as Brooke as a black woman. So let's talk about what Wayward Artist has committed to and your role in involving and expanding that repertoire there. Absolutely. So I am a company member at the Wayward Artists. I started with the organization as a guest director, and then they asked me if I would like to join the company, which means that I am allowed to use their resources to pursue any artistic endeavors that I see fit. They already had this program in place called Wayward Voices, which was their initiative to uplift BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color voices. And they asked me if I would take it over, the two gentlemen who started it, wonderful young gentlemen, um, kind of emerging artists moving on into the rest of their education and their professional lives, and me kind of settling here in Orange County and wanting to work here in Orange County as an artist. So I took over the initiative, and what I designed was a program where we would do one-person shows, and those those yes. happened in February, yep. and then we would do a reading of a play, in um, and and it would be by a BIPOC playwright, and then we would do a full production of a BIPOC play. So we're currently seeking all the designers for what we call Wayward Voices Reads and Wayward Voices Presents, but our one-person shows were incredible to kind of go back to what we were talking about, because 
they brought in an audience base that had never been in that room before. And who knows if they'll come see one of our main stage shows now? Who knows if they'll be fascinated with the company as a whole? And we will grow our audience base that way. I mean, what a wonderful outcome of wanting to uplift these BIPOC voices. Now we have more people interested in the theater as a whole. And that's a win-win when I'm always told by performers that new audiences you all performers, you eat that up. They generate such energy. And so that new audiences are exposed. The performers get the added energy. So, I mean, what, what, could, what are we missing out on? Your wayward artist is bringing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we're all doing our very best to walk the walk here. Okay. Well, I just would like you to talk, too, about coming up is going to be the Collective Rage of Play in Five Betty. Just walk us through that a little bit before I ask, like, the stunner last question. Yeah. Well, Collective Rage of Play in Five Bettys. I, again, had been working so hard. I've been getting so many questions about DEI. I've been talking about black trauma and the trauma experienced by people of color. And when our artistic director said, what do you want to do next season? I said, I want to do a play about women. Um, I'm, you know, I'm currently directing a play about um, a, 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 that's that's more focused on African Americans, and so my next project with the Wayward Artist is going to be a play about women. It's called Collective Rage: A Play in Five Bettys, written by a woman, completely a female cast, and it just really addresses some of the absurdities of womanhood, some of the absurdities of our very um, partisan landscape, and how everything is so black and white these days and it's it's just it's fun but poignant and timely i read that opening monologue and my hair was blown back it meant so much to me as far as my activism goes and my concerns about our our special very special democracy here so i'm just really excited about it. i hope everybody comes to see it it's and in when july. in july so hang on everybody so in the you said it was in on background it's going to run like a large part of the july month yeah, it's three weekends in July, so I think it opens on the 15th, maybe, and then it runs for the three weekends in July. And we'll get back. We'll talk a lot about that later on in the I'd summer. <laughs> we'll go magazine there and talk about that. So um, now this is, it's a, I think I'm asking all my sisters of color here, pull off a scab just to even go back to last week. So mm. I'd I'd like you, Brooke, to have you offer your observations of the parallels between the dynamics on the Senate Judiciary Committee and the SCOTUS nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearings and the dynamics at the Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District. You've been in the sure. thick of it. You've been in the trenches. So you've got some really valued takes on what the rest of us are. Well, some of us are insulated from that. And so it was tense. Yeah, I mean, I'm a mom and I'm a parent and I started paying attention to school boards because my little kids are in public school now and I came through public school and I just think the opportunity to go to public school is so special and important. And of course, in comes this political boogeyman, critical race theory. And I think what was really striking to me watching the confirmation hearings, I mean, as along with all of the absurd things that this woman, this incredibly accomplished woman was asked, the thing that was so striking to me was that this culture war around critical race theory is not a local issue. It is a national 
issue and it is being used as a wedge all across the country, not just in my precious PYLUSD. I mean, you see Ted Cruz holding up anti-racist baby by Ibram X. Kendi and asking if babies are racist. And then, of course, there's a absurdity of um, Blackburn asking uh, Judge Jackson to define woman, but we'll just say Blackburn is the junior senator from Tennessee. So just yes, okay, exactly. But all of this stuff is all about undermining public education. And again, Ted Cruz is holding up a book by Ibram X. Kendi, who has said eight million times and made it very clear he is not a critical race theorist. A critical race theorist is someone who looks at the result of laws and systemic racism. And so it just, it was really striking Thursday morning um, watching Judge Jackson being grilled on things that truly are just about whipping up the base of, you know, the opposition of the conservative side of this country um, and feeling those parallels because the night before our district had a study session on their proposed critical race theory ban. And 42 people came to give public comment opposing the ban. If you are on social media for one minute, you'll see multiple social media accounts talking about how they oppose the ban, including student-led groups with students who I, you know, I've kind of met in passing, but I, I never talk to, um, like, like at length, um, who are really opposed to this, the language of this ban and the ban itself. So it's a, it's instead of dealing with pedagogy and curriculum and developing greater literacy and all the academic fields, it's a proxy for parents to shoot over the bow of the, uh, over the children, uh, the, in, the students enrolled. And um, it's sort of, it, it's, it's very disconcerting that the curriculum, that the literacy project gets lost in that proxy war over that you're talking about. That both well, it on is the local, yeah. Yeah. The, the process of, of bringing a class to, um, to a school district is pretty straightforward. The educators, the, the board vote, the, the administration recommends bringing a course. Of course, we've all had it required in California that an ethnic studies um, course must be completed in order to graduate from high school. Um, and I believe that starts not next school year, but the next school year. So the administration brings forward a course that course to the board. The board approves that that course, yes, must be added to the curriculum. And then the educators write that curriculum. And then that there's feedback given on that curriculum, if the district's worth its salt, and my district certainly is. Um, and then that curriculum itself is brought to the board, again, to be approved. Whereas with this critical race theory ban, they are attempting to pre-censor any discussion of race in the classroom. And the real problem with these um, educational gag orders is that a teacher has no idea when they're crossing the line because they're too vague, because something that you would say offhand could suddenly get a complaint from a student, then go to a parent, then go to the administration. And it really, really hampers our teachers. And so then our teachers decide, well, I'm just not going to talk about it at all. So 
that the so it was a hard week last week with the um, local over the with the federal being i mean there it's in a sense the board was sort of enabled and, and um empowered by the conduct of the US Senate to serve red meat portions at your next hearing <laughs> Um, I absolutely agree. I mean, you have you have um, members of our trustees, you know, who I I know they really I think they fervently believe what they're saying, um, that they are concerned about their kids. Um, In my public comment, I said, but if my kids are old enough to learn to experience racism, then your kids are old enough to learn about it. Um, But. They also have closed themselves off to the reality. Systemic racism is a fact, and they want to ban the teaching of systemic racism. Um, Indentured servitude was not racialized, and once someone walked out of indentured servitude, they were not then condemned for the color of their skin and the way that they looked. And yet we have a trustee saying that indentured servitude was equal to racialized slavery. And it just wasn't. So these trustees who are pushing this ban truly are just in denial of the reality. And then you look back to August, there were six or seven students who, again, I had never met, never interacted with, who came to a public comment and described actual incidents of racism that they've experienced on their campuses. People, um, they were mostly Asian um, students. And talking about other students walking up to them and, you know, stretching their eyes and telling them to go back yeah, to China and yes. things like that. And it's just it's just so frustrating to me that our trustees are so interested in making sure that the conservative kids are not are not treated poorly in our schools. But the students who actually came to them and told them that they are being treated poorly have gotten no attention from them whatsoever. Brooke, I so know there's so much more to cover about this, and we'll resume this with another conversation very, very soon after the primary. Thank you for your time today and for being on Ask a Leader, and good luck with the work in the trenches there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's uh, my wrap. uh, Next week is more primary coverage. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And folks, verify your news sources every time.